What is happening, everyone? Coach Ishak with Hockey Coaching, Leading Athletics, and your host for today's episode of Anabolic Radio. I'm joined today by Dr. Eric Helms. Um, he's part of 3D Muscle Journey. He's someone who's contributed quite a bit to the natural bodybuilding evidence based space and um, he's someone who's played a huge role in my journey someone i've learned a lot from if you're not already following him go give him a follow go pick up muscle and strength pyramids that's a great resource if you have nowhere to start and um, without further ado let's go ahead and get this discussion started so we're going to be talking about coronavirus how you could be bouncing back getting back into the routine of your training we'll be talking about auto regulation defining what biofeedback signals are, how you could be measuring them, and how you could be implementing it as a very viable tool in your arsenal. So how are you doing today, Eric? I'm better now with that uh, very, very kind introduction. It's an honor to hear that. And uh, looking forward to discussing things. So, yeah, I'm good. Yeah, man, it was an honor to um, get to hit some poses with you, too, our last competition season in the back of Mayhem. Hey, fun fact, um, Eric is pretty – He's pretty fluent in Arabic, guys. It's pretty surprising uh, just to have I don't a know conversation. About pretty fluent, but uh, that's, that's, a, that's probably an over-generous over uh, uh, description, Yasadiki. So. <laughs> nice, man. So I'm sure, um, well, it's going to be different based on where you're at in the world in regards to places opening back up. Each country, each state generally has their own guidelines for how they're opening things back up. But um, for most of us, especially the listeners, the audience tuning in, um, we're looking to understand how we could better approach our training during this period of time. And for most people, like going to the gym isn't going to be the limiting factor anymore, but more so it's going to be their recovery and really managing supply and demand hmm, appropriately throughout the first, let's say, six weeks until they actually start getting back into a groove and a routine for the gym. So um, just wanted to hear your perspective. We'll go ahead and open this discussion up. How do you think people should be approaching their nutrition or just, just training during this period of time? Yeah, I think um, the whole the whole topic of biofeedback and autoregulation is especially pertinent at this time. Um, some of the some of the times when I think uh, elements of a kind of a bottom up approach that has built in modifications to day to day training is especially applicable when your stress levels are variable. Um, I wrote a, a paper led by uh, Dr. Karen Fairman and uh, along with Dr. Mike Zardos, myself, and uh, Dr. Brian Folkt, uh, specifically about how to use uh, auto-regulation strategies we have in the strength conditioning world uh, for uh, individuals who are dealing with cancer or in the recovery phase or dealing with chemotherapy. And I'm not suggesting that you know being stuck at home or having to wear a mask or uh, dealing with all the stress is the same, but I think it is certainly true um, that people are experiencing variable levels of stress. Uh, they're kind of going through these cyclical feelings of, oh, this is nice to have the space or now I'm stir crazy or maybe they have kids at home and they're like, oh, wow, I have to wear uh, the parenting hat and then the teacher hat because they're getting educated at home. And then, oh, it sounds like we are going to get uh, out, out of quarantine or oh, hearing one thing from this element of the government, another thing from this element of the government. And like you said, it's different all around the world. So nonetheless, I think it's important to have some approach uh, that pays respect to the fact that we're not in the most predictable position at the moment in terms of how we might respond respond um, 
So I'll try not to make this into a, a huge diatribe about stress and fatigue, but essentially the way uh, we've understood uh, stimulus and response in uh, resistance training science over the years has changed. We started with a very kind of... Uh, Psychology is all in your head. It's all biomedical and very kind of sanitized animal model, cadaver model understanding of the body. Uh, you know, we had the original Hans Selye general adaptation syndrome, which still holds true, um, which is essentially, you know, there's a alarm reaction to initial stress. Uh, then there's the resistance phase as your body adapts to it. And then if you overwhelm uh, your body's attempts to get back to homeostasis, which in the context of resistance training actually is the adaptation, uh, then you can can experience um, basically over overtraining or overreaching. Um, so that then became kind of the fitness fatigue model and saying, well, you know, stress does does both things. You know, it, it can induce uh, fatigue and it can induce uh, fitness adaptation. And they're not this thing where you get it right and you get stronger or you get it wrong and you, you overtrain. More so, it's these overlapping signals. You know, fatigue is generated each time you train uh, and adaptation that is helpful generates each time you tra train uh, fatigue masks fitness and they have different decay rates so if we could predict those two things we could see what's the appropriate uh, stress uh, sorry the, what's the appropriate stimulus for how long to what magnitude how long do we need to reduce it to let fatigue go down without losing the adaptation and this is what kind of the concepts of deloading tapering periodization are built on now I'd say the modern era is essentially acknowledging that yeah all that stuff is still true, but we're starting to truly understand, <clears throat> excuse me, the impact of things like uh, mental stress, perceived stress, and um, and how that uh, overlays all of this. So essentially, the the biopsychosocial model of stress is built on a kind of a multidisciplinary understanding that all of the things that we experience in life, we have a reaction to, you know, if I was to surprise you and yell in your ear when you were otherwise totally chilled, your heart rate would go up, your blood pressure would go up a little bit. We'd see a catecholamine response. Um, and, you know, more importantly than just that little indication, like we've got data showing uh, that if you take uh, a pair of couple, a, a couple, significant others, and they're in a state of conflict, their wound healing rates can be significantly decreased. Um, we have surveys of uh, college right. students. Yeah, man. And, and by a lot, too, sometimes as much as twice. Uh, we've got uh, less less huge magnitude of change, but we've got data uh, on specifically resistance training showing that uh, if you take college students, those who rate their life stress as higher or athletes uh, during exams and will have different outcomes in response to sports. So you'll see higher rates of injury during exam periods in college athletes, and you see uh, lower improvements in strength in uh, college athletes who report more life stress. So essentially, what I'm saying is that, sure, fitness fatigue, great, general adaptation, Absolutely. Foundational understanding. But how predictable is that? Can we really have kind of a the, like traditional mindset of this old grizzled, you know, Russian coach who doesn't say much, but he knows that sometime in August you're going to hit a PR on your snatch uh, on your second attempt? Uh, does he really is he really have this, you know, computer algorithm guru brain that does that? Probably not. And uh, the, the best we can do is to take uh, stock of the fact that all this is going on in the background and therefore modify 
our plan based on kind of the realities that confront us. Like you were saying, supply and demand, I love the way Jeff uh, kind of puts that forward. Understanding that supply and demand, like the economy, if we want to use that as the kind of the analogy, um, people are always trying to predict the economy. And they might be right if they back up enough, you know, if, they, if they're looking with a really broad lens. But the day-to-day market fluctuations are very, very volatile and may not mean anything, but may have an impact on what you should do. Um, and things that you might not expect can happen, which can greatly change the market. Uh, for example, things were doing well economically until, you know, we had a global pandemic. So, yeah, that analogy kind of holds true and that essentially we need to have a plan in place, but then embedded within the plan, we need to have systems to adjust when things don't quite go according to the way we expected it to. Absolutely, man. Great points. Great points. And I mean, like the reality of it is really comes down to like resistance training is a neurologically complex activity. Like you said, like it not only results in a shift from like a parasympathetic state, but to a sympathetic dominant state, like associated with hormonal cascade, your blood vessels dilate, your hormones are elevated, so on, so forth. And um, the reality is consistent, repetitive, high intensity, like training, especially resistance training could prevent your body from getting into that parasympathetic dominant state and you really relaxing, allowing some recovery to take place. So we touched on biofeedback signals. Um, Why don't we kind of dive into what biofeedback signals are and different means for individuals to be measuring them? Mm, that's a great question. So there's a, and I, I would say as a sports scientist, the way you, if, depending on how you look at this, it could be a depressing publication or it could be a very interesting one in terms of its practicality. Uh, so there was a systematic review published a couple of years ago, the lead author is Saw, and the title, I can't quite remember, but it's basically um, questionnaires trump uh, physiological measures in, in, in sports science. And what, what essentially they did is they did this big old systematic review of all the different ways that in sports science we can measure the response to, to training and try to get a gauge on fatigue and, and recovery. Uh, everything from, you know, testosterone cortisol ratio uh, to uh, blood draws to looking at uh, markers of muscle damage uh, to looking at, you know, changes in, in force output and performance. Uh, and the overall conclusion was that, you know, pretty much across the board um, if you look at like position stands on overtraining syndrome or if you look at ways of monitoring fatigue and stimulus subjective questionnaires that are validated which is a big caveat outperform all these other uh, biological mm-hmm. markers and I think it's important to understand that you might get you know creatine kinase or you might get uh, heart rate variance or you might get testosterone cortisol um, and those are like one sliver of all of the things going on inside of our bodies and the complexity uh, that explains our entire subjective and objective experience. So the the reason why these subjective questionnaires, again, if they're validated, are really useful is that if you can teach a person to be aware and reasonably objective about their subjective experience, it's the, the most valid way, uh, or let, I should say it's the most uh, consistent way that actually tracks with training stress. Because what are we if not a collection of evolutionary processes over 
arguably millions of years if you want to look at cross-species stuff or at least a long-ass time uh, just within you know our own line of species that has allowed us to be here today talking over Skype. We've survived, you know, so there's a certain element of if it works, it works. You know, if we are alive uh, with all of the predation threats and famine uh, and scarcity that we've dealt with, that means our perceptions of stress and our perceptions of our ability to adapt must be sufficiently uh, accurate and maybe even more accurate if we are able to deal with cognitive biases. We know what we're looking at. We've been coached up uh, and we are asked the right questions. So our our perceptions aren't our reality, but they heavily influence it and they may mirror it very accurately. So some of the, the best tools for biofeedback are actually appropriate questionnaires. A really good example of what might be a misused questionnaire and the most simple sense is the Borg RPE scale. That's the original 6 to 20 and then 0 to 10 scale and how hard did that feel? Um, and uh, the whole reason that the RIR, Repetitions and Reserve based RPE scale uh, that Mike Tushir originally pioneered and then myself and Dr. Zerdos have been studying um, is useful is because instead of anchoring it on how hard did that feel, which could be very different for a Marine or an ultra-endurance athlete or someone who's never lifted weights before, when they go into a three rep max that could be very hard not that hard average but when you anchor it to something that is a little more objective uh, not just how quote unquote hard was it how many reps do you have in reserve how many more reps could you do before you hit failure now all of a sudden we see it uh, correlate strongly with velocity uh, it's highly accurate in trained lifters etc cetera, etc cetera. so that's that's one example of something that's really really simple we don't have any way besides getting a linear position transducer which is basically a, a little string that attaches to the bar and then the displacement from the device tells you the distance and the velocity uh, to tell you how far from failure we think you are, right? Like a Tendo unit or a gym aware. Um, that can tell you if we've already done a profile on you uh, that, oh, you've got maybe one to two reps left or you got three reps left. Or if we know what, what the velocity you miss a rep at, what your max is, we can kind of back calculate from there and, and look at the uh, relationship with velocity. But that's not something most people can afford unless they want to drop $1,500 on a, on a LPT. However, a well-trained person is probably just as good going, I think I could do two more. Um, Another example would be instead of getting uh, testosterone, cortisol, uh, you know, salivary swabs and also taking a heart rate variance every morning and then reporting their, their subjective soreness and then collating that into some crazy algorithm, just simply saying after every session, after you rest 15 minutes and kind of let that very last set get out of your brain so you can think of the whole thing, how hard was that overall session on a 1 to 10? And then you multiply that by the total number of sets you did and you get this arbitrary number of units of stress from that program. That's called a session RPE. Mm. And there's actually good data to show that session RPE, either multiplied by time, or I think probably would be better for resistance training as number of sets, because we spend most of our time resting anyway. So time isn't a great indicator. That can tell you reasonably well, like how stressful was that block? It's retrospective, but that can help you for future planning. So those are two examples where I think anyone can can do this. They can, uh, if, if you're not used to tracking, uh, you know, repetitions in reserve, I don't think you should all of a sudden start going, you know what, screw percentage one RM, I'm just going to hit an eight at an eight RPE. Uh, maybe hit, you know, eight reps at 80% like you'd planned and then just 
gauge how many more you thought you could do. And when you're really, really accurate, you confirm that with an AMRAP. You look at video. Your coach confirms they agree that that was also an 8RPE. Then you can start uh, programming with the RPE out front instead of the percentage. And then start tracking, okay, that whole session, how hard was that out of 10? I think that was a 7. All right, I did 12 sets. All right, that's uh, 84 units of arbitrary stimulus and fatigue or whatever you want to look at. And then you can go, okay, that whole block last time, I adapted pretty well. And on average, I was getting 84 units of fatigue per day. You know what? Maybe I'll push it up a little more. I'll drop it down a little bit. I'll taper. You know, you can use that information um, in many ways, uh, probably an overwhelming number of ways. But that's just an example of how you don't necessarily need a hormonal assay, a lab, a linear position transducer, or a heart rate monitor to, to, to get some of this data. And it actually will probably be more accurate. Mm. I love how you said um, or you made the distinction between objective and subjective data and how subjective data can still be viable. Like, as we know, like, especially in contest prep, like listening to your body is very important. And I think, uh, I guess like some people, mm, they struggle in regards to being able to tap in to those feelings like proprioceptively, but like this could be used for anything, especially like digestively, like how you feel after you consume a certain food or whether or not you're ready to train based on digestion, how that meal is sitting in your stomach. Um, and like even stress, like although that's very subjective, right? We do have um, a good indication of where our baseline level stressors are at. Now, when it comes to auto-regulation, I love, like, I love progressing just based on auto-regulation, really listening to my body, although it's, like, super important to have something strategic that you follow long-term that's able to help you progress, um, really honoring the individual variance when it comes to program design is super important. And like, that's what we should be doing as like coaches too, is like we mm. teach our, our clients these different um, skills they could be implementing in their toolbox because we should be coaching them towards that next step towards independence. We don't want to hold their hand for the next like 10 years, right? So I loved, uh, loved what you said there. And when it comes to auto-regulation, um, how would we define that for the listener? and how they can they implement that as part of their arsenal. Great. I love the way you frame that, and that's a really good question. So auto-regulation, um, the reason why the word auto there is not that it's just about regulating yourself, is that it can be also just simply automatic. So these are aspects in a program that are embedded, if you will, into the program. So for example, um, if I give you a program, I'm still your coach, I'm still creating it, and I say, hey, I want you to do three sets of eight between a seven to nine RPE, um, that is in two ways, quote unquote, auto-regulated. One, it's built in that the strength you have on this day will be dictated by uh, your you know, the load you put on the bar on this day will be dictated by your perception of your strength. And then two, that is putting some level of autonomy in your hands. So there are is a there is a biological rationale and then also kind of a, I would say, a motivational rationale for why this is something useful to do as a coach. Like you talked about, um, you're not really doing a service to your athletes if you're holding their hand. Um, you know, our role as a coach is to help someone unlock their best potential 
within. Uh, and even more so in individual sports and in a sport where most of the time the coaches are working with you online. Because it's not like, you know, if you live in some place that has a couple hundred thousand people in it, the likelihood that the best coach in the world lives in the same city as you is pretty unlikely, you know? So there was a time back in 2009 when 3DMJ started, we were having to call people when they signed up for our service and defend the fact that we were training them online. That conversation no longer has to occur. People understand that they're limited by the geographical area and, and that the, the, the trade-off of someone not being able to physically see you is well worth not potentially getting a horrible coach, you know, who can see you and, and then really do some, some damage and be in the same city. Uh, yeah, there might be some great people in your area. Yeah, you may have a certain sport like Olympic weightlifting uh, that really requires someone to see you, a truly technically complex, um, you know, skill that you have to teach. You don't want to do that via distance, ideally, especially with a beginner. But for something like bodybuilding, where the uh, hypertrophy is the goal, the, you know, the biomechanics involved are only as complex as they need be. You know, all these movements are vehicles to induce tension uh, and, and a stimulus to grow. So anyway, I got a little off track. But the point is, is that you don't lose nearly as much as you stand to gain by looking online to find a coach. So a good coach is going to realize, all right, I'm getting less effective uh, monitoring of you than I would if I was in person. Like if I was a personal trainer with you in your city and I saw you uh, three three hours a week uh, versus getting an email where you have been the arbiter of what do I get to see? You've either given me a 15-minute video that describes seven days at best um, or you've maybe given me two paragraphs and uh, you know a Google sheet. How much can that truly encapsulate what occurred in the last week. And even if it is encapsulated, it's going to come from at least the subjective stuff they type or they speak out loud and maybe they record on their phone. Uh, that voice, video message, or email is going to be their filter of their experience, right? Mm-hmm. So if you're a poor communicator, if you are punitive in your response, if you are too much of a handholder, you're teaching them to give you a certain style of, of, of information. So in some ways, that can be problematic. That can be useful that you can help your client reframe the way they view things into a way that's more facilitative to reach their goals. Um, But the more embedded you can make it so that you're giving them tools to help themselves, the less filtered they will be because you're not dealing with uh, their own cognitive biases filtering through multiple steps, the information you get from them and then making a decision. At the most basic level, if that sounded uber complex, um, let's say you get annoyed with your clients and they don't follow the nutrition plan. Their adherence is poor. And even you have a little bit of a condescending or annoyance or some kind of semi-punitive response. That means they're more likely to downplay that aspect or maybe outright lie and say, I don't know what's going on with the scale coach. And then they feel bad. You know, they might try to do extra cardio, but not tell you about it. This whole cascade of things can happen uh, just because you get annoyed that they didn't hit their macros. That's not something we think about. uh, But these things become even more amplified when you do it online. Then you start making these weird adjustments and then they start having uh, problems with those adjustments. Um, But if you take the philosophical underpinning of auto-regulation and you realize that it applies to coaching in general, a lot of these things sort themselves out. So if you're taking a client-led approach, it is the client's goals, not mine. They're the captain of the ship. I'm the navigator. I'm an experienced navigator. And this is the first time they've taken a ship out. You know, they're a young lieutenant. Um, 
them, but they're the person who knows their body best and always will be. Uh, and the more I can get out of them about their scenario, the more I can give them good information to apply towards their goals. Why would I punish them for not reaching their own goals? That's that, that I, at best I should ask him a question and say, Hey, you know, I notice your actions aren't lining up with, uh, you know, what you told me your goals are. Do we need to reset up the, the plan? Cause it, it doesn't seem to be working, you know, or maybe you need to look inward and go, are my goals really what I want? You know? So anyway, that's the, the coaching aspect of it. But if you take that same philosophy and you put it into training, that means that, um, they are the person who's going to have the best idea of maybe how capable, strong, recovered, um, or, or stressed they are in that given day. And then it's just a matter of, okay, how do I coach them to be able to discern that and then make decisions based on it in the moment without it becoming overwhelming too much or just having the smorgasbord of options that really just leaves them paralyzed or overwhelmed. And that's where things like auto-regulation come into play. Uh, if you can teach someone through a step-by-step a, a -step process of how to gauge how many reps in reserve they have, now all of a sudden um, they can put the right load on the bar on a day-to-day -day basis based on how their stress fluctuates. We don't have to worry about tracking stress. We just ask them to change their load based on their stress levels. And then if they're not progressing, we change something else and then we see if it does. And there are equivalents for that auto-regulation of load for frequency training schedule volume uh, that, that, that can be used. So that's just uh, kind of one example and then a little bit of a philosophical uh, detour that I took, but hopefully got us back to your question. No, I love it. I love it for sure, man. And um, there's so many different points I'd love to talk about. But, um, you know, the reality is we only have so much control over the amount of stress that we induce through our training, right? So it's even more of a reason to really work on your stress management techniques if your level of stress is like way out the roof, right? Um, that could lead to a whole whole host of other health issues. But if you're super stressed, you should probably use your time a little bit more productively and de-stress rather than using your training as a means to induce more stress. Like when you're training, you're literally in a stressed state. So it's just important to take into account. And, um, you know, the I might. Real yeah. quick, it's training is one of those things. You know, as humans, we like to put things with with uh, distinct definitions. Like training is a stress, but it's also a tool for stress management. It's a mm. it's a it's a funny thing. You know that um, there are so many overlapping uh, signals and things that do multiple things. You know, um, so for example. We sometimes forget that almost everything we're talking about in the mind and the body adapt over time, you know. So I think a good way, and this is a great analogy that I like to steal from Mike T. Uh, if we think about that, like the traditional model of programming that is taking a more top-down approach and just looking at stress without kind of that background is, okay, uh, your recovery is basically the combination of how big your sink is, like a literal sink in your kitchen, and uh, the that that's your that's your capacity. Like if I overflow that sink, that's an error. That, that, that's that's overtraining, overreaching, uh, maladaptation, whatever you want to call it. The faucet and the, the water pressure is my programming. That's how much I'm putting into you, right? So if I want to fill up your strength capacity, and it's it's stress and stimulus, right? And if it overflows, I've made a boo I made a, I made a boo boo, and then I have to match the the time course, the water pressure, and all that to how quickly your your drain drains, right? And every Every individual has a different size sink and a different drain. Mm. However, it's not just that. Your drain can also get bigger 
bigger or smaller. So if you follow a really low, low volume program for time, that drain adapts to how much water's coming in. I don't need to be this big. There's barely any stress going through. So for example, if you're someone who always follows a very conservative, low volume approach, you have a history of injury and you're very cautious, you've got a small drain. And then someone, you know, you, you plateau and, and, and you get convinced you've got to do a high volume program. And let's say you throw caution to the wind, uncharacteristically of you, and you turn that faucet on real high, it'll overflow and you go, oh, no, I got to stick with low volume. Similarly, if you're someone who is just not that good at handling, you know, a ton of volume and you have convinced right out the gate, you've got to do high volume, you might always be in a state of kind of leaking water and the drain's trying to get bigger, trying to get bigger and the, the sink adapts. So it's it's this uh, this interplay that if you don't turn on that water, um, yeah, you're going to, like, if you don't stress yourself, you'll be less capable to handle stress. But there is a finite amount in any given time that is adapting of how much stress you can handle. And it can adapt down and it can adapt up. So uh, that's why in most, in most, uh, if you look at injury data, it's a great example of this. There's a U-shaped relationship with training volume and total training stress or total training load. Um, in that if people are, if athletes are doing very little, they get injured more often. And if athletes are doing a lot, they get injured more often. But if they are doing sufficient training stress to be adaptable, but not more than they can currently handle, they're less likely to get injured compared to those who are doing too little or too much. So it's, it's yeah, like I, I totally agree. But at the same time, uh, you have to realize that there's two things going on, you know, at any given time. So, yeah. Great point, man. I love how you reframe that. Um, train hard, but recover even harder. And, um, you know, the human body is amazing despite our biological similarities. We're all wired a little bit differently. So, I, and I love how you said in your previous explanation how, like, although, you know, you may have a coach, you know, their experiences are getting filtered through their response. So, while although just because someone looks good, um, you know, that doesn't mean they have the end all or be all program for you. Um, they're, they could be just programming from a place of experience or they're just, they don't know yet, right? Um, so when it comes to the theory of deloading and really understanding the theoretical construct of the fitness fatigue model, um, how can trainees better implement that in their training to allow for sufficient recovery to take place? That's good. I like this because I've been talking all kinds of like philosophy and theory and people are like, sweet, so what do I do, bro? Um, so I think deloading is one of those really useful things. And I've, I've changed over time in my uh, the way I present this information and how I apply it. Um, depending on my perception of the bodybuilding and strength training community and depending on whether I'm a coach or I'm an author or science communicator um, because unlike any other sport, bodybuilders especially struggle with deloads because they are always in the mindset of I'm either making gains right now or my life's over. Um, you know, if I'm not moving forward, I'm, I'm, I'm dying. I'm losing muscle. My hamstrings are going to be left on the treadmill. So the... Uh, for example, the way I used to present deloads is, you know, what does every fourth week take one? And that is at face value, not like the, the why, why would everyone have the same deload time course? And the reason why was because I felt like if I didn't give a just do a deload on this this time frame, 
people would just keep trading until they were had a deload forced upon them. You know, it's kind of like the recommendation. And, but I, I don't agree with this. this is the way I used to think. It's kind of the recommendation of, hey, every 3,000 miles or whatever it is, get your oil changed. And it's, I said, whatever it is, like I don't know, but it's just because it's changed now. I live in New Zealand, so it's kilometers. So I, I swear I got my oil, my oil changed. <laughs> and and the average bodybuilder is kind of like, well, like I don't feel like my oil needs to be changed. It's fine, you know. And then so we laugh at the idea of waiting till your car breaks down to get your oil changed. But I think that was my motivation because I perceived that's how the bodybuilding community default setting was in more cases than not, uh, was that they would push it too hard, wait too long, ride the limit, redline it, and get injured or hurt. So my kind of probably over nanny state style approach was, well, let's just give them um, an aggressive deload approach. And then, you know, they're going to train too hard anyway for the three weeks prior. They'll still make progress. Is it suboptimal? Sure. But it's better than them being broken for 10% of their career. I think now I've probably been a little more respectful of the brains of my audience. uh, And I do more so what I do with my athletes. So while I would say that and like the first edition of the Muscle and Strength Pyramids will have a fourth week deload set up. What I would do with my actual athletes was I would set up an individualized deload schedule um, because I, I felt I was there and I could give them an objective eye, uh, ear, and, um, and, and, and help them uh, make the right decisions more often um, so that they wouldn't risk being injured. Um, so instead of – so trying to, the, the middle ground now when I talk to people about it is I think, okay, well, what it goes into the algorithm, into my brain of when I – I decide someone needs to deload. You know, what what feedback do they give me? Uh, what things do I see in their performance, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, that lead to that? So now, what I normally do is at the end of each mesocycle, um, if I'm not getting this subjectively and and, and less formally, I uh, what I recommend, for, in fact, my, in my books, for example, is a checklist. You know, and the checklist has yes or no questions. So it's either yes or no, not a scale, not something where it's kind of muddy in the water. You have to actually decide. Um, Am I more stressed than normal? Is my sleep worse than normal? Do I have more aches than pains than normal? Am I actually getting weaker or regressing? So if we go back to saying, okay, I've got this RPE system in here, that means even though you might go from like three by eight at an eight RPE, three by seven at an eight and a half, three by six at a nine RPE, that might be kind of this linear progression. You're expected to see the loads going up, but if your six at a nine is a lighter weight than your eight at an eight, things aren't going well, right? We're, we haven't, at least in terms of the, the, the load, your force output is is going down. So that indicates that we have not gotten something right. Either you're overly stressed, maybe you're in a huge caloric deficit, your sleep's off, whatever. Something has uh, led to that water over overspilling over the sink, right? Uh, or it's possible that it's just not nearly enough stress, like uh, that, that you need more, far more work than, than what you're doing. Um, but if you do need more stress, you wouldn't be having more stress than normal or sleep, all these other things. So I, I selected a handful of questions. I think there's five um, that are yes or no. And if more than, uh, if you answer yes to more than one of them, take a deload. So if two out of five or more, eh, probably better safe than sorry, do a deload. And then another typically rule I like to use is if you go through three mesocycles without taking one, take one. So my typical mesocycle length I write is about three weeks. So that means worst case scenario, you're doing a deload every fourth week. 
And that probably tells you something about your programming, that maybe you're being too aggressive uh, for your level of recovery. Or it's happening every seventh week or maybe every tenth week, which is probably more appropriate. And, and it's actually a more efficient way to train if you think about it, um, that you're getting more weeks that are stimulative uh, versus uh, weeks that are, are aiming to reduce the uh, the spillover of fatigue from that that training. So um, kind of the, the nice way of doing it is, is plan out a mesocycle. Embed some elements of autoregulation. Could just be RPE, right? And then at the end of that mesocycle, once you finish that week, think about the, uh, the, the it as a whole and were you, per, were you actually regressing when you should have at least been maintaining or, pro, or progressing? That That's a red flag. Is your sleep worse than normal? That's both a cause and a symptom of overreaching, right? Um, is your Stress higher than normal. Again, cause and symptom. So it's it's one of those things that we would put a red flag on. Are your aches and pains worse than normal? Okay, so we're, we're seeing some some leak. Maybe we don't. Pain's a complex experience, but at the very least, if you're if all your joints are hurting, if your DOMS are higher, uh, that gives you some indication that you're maybe behind a little a little on the recovery curve. Um, then one other that I can't remember off the top of my head right now. I'm sure it'll pop in if I was to look at my own book. But uh, but anyway, you you create this questionnaire. Uh, Things that are yes or no, and then if if if, if more than uh, a few of them are, are are there, you create some line in the sand that you decide. All right, if if that happens, then I'm going to go ahead and, and and take time off from the from uh from a stimulating week and, ha- and take a week deload. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure, great explanation, man. And um, I love how you just keep going back to the sink analogy, right? So no, you don't need to auto regulate and deload because your HRV is off, um, but. Maybe that's a, a, a additional biofeedback sure. signal you could be taking into account to better determine that. And, oh, and so- I remember the I remember what the fifth one was. Sorry to interrupt. It is yeah. is your motivation to train less than normal? Because that is also something that's been mm-hmm. shown almost consistently across the board is that you start to see signs of depression um, and apathy in people who are experiencing overtraining. And that's one of the things that typically really stands out in people who are in the bodybuilding community because we are hyper motivated to train so if you find that your motivation has gone down and your sleep's bad and you're feeling beat up maybe it's time for a deload you know um so yeah things like that so sorry those are the five questions that i use um that i find have a pretty clear yes or no answer and if it's two or more of those suckers better safe than sorry take a deload week you know drop your volume by a third drop your rps by by a point range and that that often will get you back behind the eight ball but anyway go ahead sorry absolutely no no no. that was just a perfect leeway into like there's multiple ways to deload whether that be like desensitizing from a particular training stimulus or decreasing inflammation in the body or improving detoxification in the body or like you said like mentally mental health or just improving that parasympathetic dominant state there's a lot of reasons as to why we should deload there's a lot of ways to there's a million ways to skin a cat or that analogy that people usually say so great man and um now, just to tie it back in, into a little about the discussion of the topic, what are some practical takeaways trainees could um, really implement from, you know, auto-regulation, biofeedback, and managing recovery appropriately? Because the gyms are opening back up. People are going to want to be going to the gym. They're going to be training balls to the wall. And usually, generally, what I say is, 
is like, hey, you know, if you really use this as an opportunity to like, let's say, decrease your training load by 50% and really become more efficient with your exercise execution, how you perform movements and really using that as an opportunity to better develop your foundation and resistance training, then you can start to progress through these other training variables, whether that be adding some volume in or progressing through reps or progressing through load. There's a lot of ways to progress. Different conversation for another time. But, um, yeah, some practical takeaways for, for people to better manage their recovery during this period of time. What would you say? Absolutely, yeah. The um, So going back to that, that, that sauce systematic review, that's the lead author where, hey, questionnaires are the best. A close second is performance. And I think a better way to frame it is that if your plan is working, you should be performing better. And performance for a bodybuilder, especially a bodybuilder, um, it does mean am I bigger? Am I more jacked? Are my weak points coming up? But the realities are that after the first couple years of well thought through training and a caloric surplus, um, that pace of progress is probably the minimum change you can expect over a mesocycle uh, visually or even on a tape measure is less than uh, you might be able to identify and we get caught up in the noise. Um, however, what is not is your performance. And if your overall performance is going up, that is a uh, indicator indicator that indeed your cross-sectional area has probably gone up. If other things are fixed, like your your rep ranges are reasonably fixed or in, in the same range, your exercise selection is reasonably fixed or within the same kind of handful of movements, um, and other other aspects are all in place. You know, if your if your 12 rep max has gone up across a whole bunch of lifts, that's a good sign that probably something's growing. Um, so uh, basically, we use these auto-regulatory tools and performance to get an idea of what to do now how to look back on it and how to correlate that to see if we improve. So some of the easiest things to do are start to gauge how far you are from failure, you know, um, and then start to use RPEs and trainings. You can put the right weight on the bar. That's the easiest one to do. Um, and as far as the application for hypertrophy, we know that being a reasonable proximity to failure is important to get high levels of tension to develop in the muscle to actually stimulate growth. Um, you probably want to be somewhere in the realm of a five to 10 RPE. That means nowhere from further than five reps from failure all the way up to going to failure. And it depends on what exercise you're doing, the total volume of the session and the phase of your training where you'd want to be. Most of the time, I'm going to recommend if someone's doing a compound movement that trains the full body, like a squat or a deadlift, um, basically free weight, uh, lower body exercises that require at least your upper body to support you. You're probably going to be training mostly in the six to eight RPE range. The reason being is those typically start a session and then afterwards you're going to do shit like a leg press, leg curl, leg extension calf raise. And if you blow yourself out of the water with global cardiometabolic fatigue, we've got some decent data to indicate that everything else will suffer after that. Uh, and it may be actually due to central fatigue to where you're not able to recruit those uh, those muscles to work as hard as you'd like them to. And we like peripheral fatigue because that forces us to recruit more, you know, in a, in a more... Uh, acidic state and higher uh, metabolite state, we actually see the, th the threshold for motor unit recruitment go down. So, you know, like when you're doing those drop sets and and, uh, and and supersets on a lateral raise or a curl, yeah, you're actually getting a pretty good stimulus. Try to do that on a, on, on a squat, you're probably just going to throw up and have a shitty session. So, the um, it's important, especially with high reps, so it's important to use the tool appropriately. You know, so you want to go reasonably heavy, kind of moderate rep ranges, moderate loads, a couple reps left in the tank, and maybe 
maybe do a few more sets on your big lifts and then you can start to train a little closer to failure kind of moving from that six to eight to like eight to ten so let's say on the last exercise for a given body part which is typically isolation you might be hitting failure and that's totally fine and then you just see using those rpe ranges does the emerging load from that the load that should reach those rpe targets does that show an improvement you know um is that allow me to to progress over time you don't have to train with an rpe you can also use an open-ended set with a percentage and stop at an rpe you can be like all right i'm just going to load 80 percent on my squat and then i'll stop when i hit a six to eight rpe and then if your reps increase same thing then you know you're progressing so then you also take that value that one to ten value a session rpe afterwards multiply it by the number of sets you did and you can get an idea of the overall stress so if your performance went up you used rpe uh, to either put the right weight on the bar or use the percentage with an RPE stop to do the right amount of reps with that load that day. And then you can look back ret- retrospectively and be like, oh, the average stress for that mesocycle was this. And I progressed or I didn't progress. That can tell you that either that was or wasn't enough. How do you know if it was or wasn't enough? That's where you use that deload checklist. So now you've got uh, the retrospective, uh, the diagnostic, and the, the day-to-day thing. So the day-to-day tools, you stop at a given RPE or you load with a given RPE, you, you train. Afterwards, you rate your session RPE, multiply it by the total number of sets. You get an idea of the average for the block. Did I or did I not make overall progress on my lifts? Okay, I did. Great. I'll keep going unless I feel like trash on that deload five question yes or no thing. If I answered yes or no to two more, it was effective. It was great. However, it was too high of a level of stress for me to recover. And then I look at, okay, well, how much did I do? Okay, I did 84 units of arbitrary stress based on that session RPE, maybe I should try to get that down to maybe like a 78 or something like that and see if I can maybe string two mesocycles together and still progress without uh, having to take a deload. So then you take your deload because you answered yes to two or more. You run the block again, but slightly lower total stress to hopefully get that session RPE down. And then you do it again. And maybe this time you get through two mesocycles. Yeah, maybe the progress in the first mesocycle, instead of improving 5%, you improve 4%. But if you get two of those strung together, you got 8 percent with only one deload so the overall net benefit training a little bit less hard in that mesocycle is that you can do two of those mesocycles before deloading so those are that those are probably the most practical examples the deload checklist that tells you whether the progress or lack of thereof came from doing something you could or couldn't recover from effectively Uh, the rpe guiding the number of reps or the load you put on the bar to make the individual session more appropriate to your stress levels that day and then finally, uh, the uh, the session RP to get an idea of the total stress levels for that mesocycle. And you can then look at in relation to, did I need a deload? And what does that tell me? Was that an appropriate level of stress or not? So those are three tools that literally anyone can use to get an idea and how they would work together to get some kind of idea. And then to your final point of some people are going to be coming out of lockdown. I think it's this is an important uh, realization that if you haven't been training or if your training is really really, really changed relative to what you were doing in terms of frequency, rep ranges, uh, and now you're going to be putting heavy weights in your back. Before, maybe you were just, you had a backpack full of rice bags and you were doing Bulgarian split squats of BFR. Um, yeah, you probably got your quads super stimulated, but now you're going to put 315 on your back? I don't know if that's a good idea. Uh, or at least if it is, maybe just do a single. So this is very different depending on if your goals are strength or hypertrophy. But for me, for example, I'm a strength athlete and a uh, bodybuilder 
So when I came back this first week, I've got a few bodybuilding sessions uh, that are looking very similar to what I had to do at home. High reps, uh, pumpy stuff, low stress movements. You know, we're talking dumbbell stuff and bands, but it'll be like cables or whatever the equivalent is. But low stress movements that I am, uh, the, the type of training I could do at home, I'm going to transition from that to my more traditional. You know, I'll start bringing the rep ranges down, start doing variations. But for my strength work, if it's something I couldn't do at home, which was basically anything besides snatch and overhead press. Those are the only ones I could load relatively heavy to my strength. For those, I'm coming in, I'm literally just doing a single between a seven to eight RPE just to see where I'm at and to acclimate my body to those loads. No back offsets, nothing else. Just a couple times a week, work up to a single one squat, front squat, bench, all the movements that I, I couldn't do heavy previously, deadlift. Um, rather than going, oh, I used to do five by five. Cool. I'll just do five by five, but lighter. You're going to get wrecked. So I would come back and do something like 50% of the volume at a lower RPE than you used to do and then go up like 10% in volume. And you may find that you make great, great progress. And if you actually surpass your old numbers before you get to your old volume, that tells you something that you were probably doing a counterproductive level of volume before. And it's a good time to hit that control delete and see what you really need to grow for you individually at an optimal rate. Absolutely, absolutely. Preach. Love what you said. Everybody should just press a reset button for a second. And, you know, this is something that I've seen like very common. Like a lot of beginners or even intermediates, like they're focusing on all these complex advanced training variables when they don't even have their foundation developed. They're not even setting up exercises correctly. They're not executing them properly. So many different variables. But, um, yeah, man, I love what you said about the Bulgarian split spots, too. That's literally me. Like, um, my neighbor, he got me these 55-pound um, dumbbells that he doesn't use. And, man, I, so I got them, and I went and I got a couple sessions, and I'm, like, I'm sore. And it feels so good to have that feeling again because, you know, my focus, my training lately has been, like, more metabolite-focused because that's all I'm limited to, right? Um, but, yeah, and, like, there's this some weird constraint for some of the commercial gyms over here in the States that um, it's limiting people to an hour session, which if that's the case for most gyms everywhere, I think what you said is super important, really just prioritizing more of your strength or heavy weight or compound movements with that time that you have available into the gym and really just come back home and get your accessory movements in, get your, um, get your tricep extensions, get your bicep curls, so on and so forth because those can be done with relatively like light loads um, and it's also super important guys just I just want to stress like take into account what Eric said because like all adaptations in the body are reversible so you're not going to be to where you previously were in regards to your training strength and what you were previously doing but that shouldn't discourage you from slowly getting back into the routine of things and getting to a place to where you be able to make progress long term prevent injuries and um, so on and so forth. Now, just to round off this conversation, when it comes to adaptations, adaptations are so damn complex and there are so many variables that influence adaptations. I feel like a lot of people hmm, short change what they could, um, how much they could accomplish just because of all the different variables that influence it, right? Especially like, let's say, for example, you're stressed that day, you had shitty nutrition, you had a fight with your ex-girlfriend, and then you go get your first um, working set in of a given exercise, and then you're doing lighter weight 
for the exercise thereafter, is that because those external stressors or is that because, you know, you're going into a more specific movement, a little bit more fatigue? So what are some practical takeaways the audience could implement in regards to better gauging adaptations in the body? Yeah, I think um, I think it's the the way that some of this could be misapplied is looking at over too short of a time frame, you know. So I think all the stuff you mentioned can influence how how well we adapt. But if you've got the big picture things in place, the net like you might see a huge dip like in randomly in week three because you broke up with your girlfriend um and maybe if you guys weren't together that long and you weren't too invested in the relationship just to try to create a random scenario it only affects week three you know um and then you know at the end of uh week eight you're like oh actually i'm back on track but if you get way way too focused on the week to week like let's say you're a late stage novice because novices as we all remember that mythical time point in our career where every time i did a movement again i could do more reps or lift more load that that can last you know six months you know depending on on how well you set up your training and um you can get really used to that and then if you're in year two of training you might have just been program hopping for the last year and a half trying to find the quote-unquote right program for you where you could make week-to-week progress again or session-to-session progress instead of accepting the fact that oh maybe i am simply looking for too high of a magnitude of adaptation over this time course now that i'm a little more advanced so i think it's really important another thing i stress is to make sure that you're looking at it with the right perspective of what's realistic so yeah if you just stepped into the gym pretty much each time you repeat a movement unless you're training like three days or something like that you should be able to progress you know uh whether that's a rep or whether that's five pounds it doesn't need to be a lot um but once you have put in a fair amount of time under the bar it might come mesocycle to mesocycle so the uh the examples I gave of someone looking over, you know, three-week blocks, uh, multiple three-week blocks per se, is probably more appropriate for those who've been training for a while. Um, I mean, if you think about it, uh, a lot of us are maybe putting, if we look at our like powerlifting total as a decent proxy, if you look at experienced powerlifters at the at the, at the national level or world-class level, they're adding less than 10% of their total per year. You know, you don't see someone go from 800 to 880 in a year that's that that'd be an, a, a really really impressive yeah i mean like that that can happen maybe if you go up a weight class at the same time and you were holding yourself back or if you were really really training efficiently before um and just the fact that you're totaling 800 kilos in a, with inefficient training says you're also genetically gifted <laughs> so um so yeah i think we need to have realistic expectations relative to where we have been because if we were truly able to progress week to week that means most people should be squatting Jupiter at some point, you know, in their <laughs> career. So as it just doesn't work that way. So I think the most important thing is while I gave some three distinct tools that can be used in an interrelated sense, like you said, adaptation is complex and we're going to, you, you want to make sure you're not chasing ghosts. So the, the use of like RPE on a day-to-day basis is to put the right weight on the bar for that day. It's not to then have that catastrophic mindset of, oh my God, my squat dropped 10 kilos today what's wrong maybe nothing maybe wednesday was a bad day see how you're doing when you assess the whole block in retrospect uh, and whether or not your overall training loads your average training loads are going up um so that's probably the most important thing i have to say on that point is just make sure that you are um 
assessing because you know garbage in garbage out right if you're if you're chasing the wrong numbers or too few of a time frame if your signal to noise ratio is off you're going to chase the noise instead of the signal which you want to avoid mm, great points man lovely lovely discussion that we've had i want to thank you um for coming on we're short, running a little bit short on time i genuinely appreciate it and again i just want to thank you again for you know the road that you've paved for you know what everything is shaping up to be in the nutrition training bodybuilding related space um so i genuinely appreciate it. i'm sure the audience really appreciate that too and do you have anything coming up that you'd like to let the know let the audience know about yeah, I think the big one that people might be interested in, especially since we're talking a lot of natural bodybuilders, is that I'm really, really fortunate. Uh, speaking of roads being paved, I've partnered with uh, Dr. Joe Klimzeski. Um, he's the, the, the original uh, kind of evidence-based natural bodybuilding coach who brought it online and really got us all paying attention to, to science. Uh, whether you realize it or not, if you were in the era of Lane Norton, well, guess what? He coached Lane Norton. If you're in the era of me, guess what? I, I went to a, a 2008 seminar of his when I first fell in love with the man. But anyway, um, we've partnered and created the Nutrition Coaching Global Mastermind, which is in place to help nutrition coaches in all areas, not just bodybuilding, uh, get uh, discussions uh, that they can be a part of. These are online webinars that happen monthly with our our founding board, uh, where we talk about um, best practice, scope of practice, uh, and also evidence-based practice. So understanding how to do your job, how to be better better coaches, um, what, what you can, can't do, should or shouldn't do, how you can stay up to date and really keep your finger on the pulse of the industry so you know what might be coming down the pipe. Because now that all businesses have gone online, there's going to be more regulation for people who already worked online, uh, especially in the areas of nutrition where we you know tread lightly with our scope of practice compared to registered dietitians, et cetera. So that's, those are pretty cool. It's myself along with Dr. Joe. But like I said, we also have Eric Trexler, uh, Gabrielle Fundero, uh, Jennifer Souders, who's an MD and a special has a lot of specialty in the area of legality. Uh, we've got uh, Brian St. Pierre, uh, one of the one of the head honchos behind Precision Nutrition, uh, he's an RD. Uh, we got Paul Revelia, who's kind of speaks to the the, the 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 entrepreneurs out there who are nutrition coaches, and he's been in the game for a while. Uh, and we've got uh, more like Corey Probst, who's a psychologist. So we've we've got every angle covered, and we bring on guests. We had uh, Dr. Bill Campbell on in one of our last uh, webinars. So it's a really great resource for anyone who's trying to make a career out of you know helping people reach their goals through nutrition. Mm. Lovely, man. Yeah, guys, go sign up. Go sign up to Mass if you haven't already and go buy a couple copies of Muscle and Strength Pyramid. Uh, thanks for coming on, Eric. Genuinely appreciate it. Stay safe, wash your hands, and um, train hard to recover even harder. We'll talk soon, guys. Thanks for listening.